The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Scorebox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. We are live in Glasgow at the COP26 and, of course, at our London studio. These are your headlines. COP26, well, hopefully, maybe, not for sure, entering its final day with countries yet to agree on a 1.5% limit to global warning. warming. Uh, the UN's Secretary General says the goal is on life support, whilst the COP President Alex Sharma warns time is running out. The rubber is actually hit the road and we need to make sure that we do our best to ensure we get this one over the line. President Xi and Biden will reportedly meet virtually on Monday, right as the US president ramps up restrictions on Chinese tech. EV maker Rivian is now worth more than General Motors, with its shares soaring another 22% just two days after going public. Meanwhile, Tesla CEO Elon Musk takes a shot at his new rival. And elsewhere, Belarus threatens to turn off Europe's gas supplies amid an escalating migrant crisis at its western border. We are warming Europe, and they threaten us to shut the border after all. And what if we cut natural gas supplies? We have numbers crossing from Richmond this morning and uh, if I can just say this one will be closely watched by the markets as activists in recent days have come out and criticised the performance of the company and called for more action. So closely eyed uh, in terms of what we're looking at this morning. The company says uh, further progress has been made towards creating a neutral industry-wide platform. It says it is an advanced discussion with Farfetch with a view to enhancing the partnership it established last year. And don't forget many different parts to this business as we talk about the e-commerce side, but also uh, what we're seeing uh, with the very luxury timepiece jury end of the market. The company announces a strong performance for the six months. Uh, it says Uxnet a porter leveraging that far-fetched platform solutions to support its ongoing transition to a hybrid uh, 1P, 3P business. Uh, sales at the company rose by a strong double digits across all business areas, channels and regions. It uh, is also uh, talking about a double-digit increase across Maisons, businesses and channels led to half-year sales up 63%. So we are talking a fairly decent bounce here on these numbers. Triple-digit growth in America is uh, reaching sales levels close to Europe and uh, they're talking about a group operating profit of 1.95 billion euros leading to a 22% operating margin. Now, the question for the market is whether this is going to be good enough. The share price has been very strong this year, but it has been a market where other luxury players in uh, some quarters have actually eclipsed what you're seeing. We're talking to Watches of Switzerland this week as well, earlier in the week. Their share price performance has been even stronger than this. So uh, the market is going to be raking through these announcements, and particularly around that e-commerce tie-up, what it means in terms of direction, whether it's going to be enough to ward off some of the pressure from the activist community. Negotiations over a climate deal at 26 are entering their final day, with UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez telling AP 
that a bid to secure agreement on limiting global warming is on life support. So a huge focus is what we're seeing on negotiating tactics here and what comes next on potential annual targets as well. Speaking to CNBC in Glasgow at COP26, uh, the President, Alok Sharma, said there is still a lot of work left to do. Let's take a listen. Progress has been made, but uh, it is still a, a very big mountain to climb. Uh, we've got 48 hours and, um, you know, I'm holding a plenary at uh, 11.15 where I'll set out the work plan over the next 24 hours and beyond. But we're getting to that point where the rubber has actually hit the road and we need to make sure that we do our best to ensure we get this one over the line. Anyway, I have reminded ministers and delegates that world leaders came here at the start. They said they wanted an ambitious outcome and that's what we all need to collectively drive towards. Thank you. If I could just ask one more question. The Prime Minister yesterday said world leaders are going to have to show some margin in the negotiations. How much margin are the UK willing to show in negotiations? Well, the UK is obviously leading this process in terms of building consensus. That's our role in this process. Uh, we have shown ambition in terms of our work on climate, in terms of what we've done with our NDCs, with our carbon budgets, uh, and of course our, our long-term strategy. So I do think the UK has shown leadership, but my role is to build consensus amongst almost 200 parties, and that's what we're going to try and do. Yet one of many doorstops happening there at uh, COP26. And meanwhile, Steve also caught up with the EU Commission Executive Vice President Franz Timmermans and asked what's possible in the remaining hours of the summit. What can be achieved is that we can say with credibility that we can reach the 1.5 next year. I think that is possible. And I think I want to thank um, um, Alok Sharma for his efforts because he's really doing a tremendous job. And what's the biggest barrier to that deal, perhaps by six o'clock tomorrow or over the weekend? I think we need to prove to the developing world that our efforts on financing are credible. It's not just about the exact amounts of money. It's also about the structures we put into place to make sure the financing will be coming also after 2025. And finally, sir, is the deal between the US and China or the agreement, the bilateral agreement to make progress together, is that a cosy side deal to try and deflect attention when multilateralism surely is the way forward? No, it's not. Because it, just imagine a couple of days ago, everybody's thinking, where is China? They're not doing anything. Uh, the rows between the US and China on many issues. Now they said with this, with this joint statement, they say clearly there are su there's one subject that transcends any political differences we may have, and that's the climate crisis. And we both commit to the 1.5 to tackling um, methane emissions, to tackling CO2 emissions. That is just a good sign. But now we have to go and see what that means concretely in terms of their position in this uh, COP. But I'm, I mean, I'm really grateful for the statement because it shows that even countries that have serious differences can say this issue should not keep us divided. Now let's get back out to Steve for more. Steve, I think uh, a lot of people have been optimistic, but there's been no shortage of sceptics too about what COP26 can achieve. What do you think we're looking at here as we count down to the final hours of negotiations? Good morning, Karen. I think there are many things, including I'm not sure these are the final hours of negotiations. Uh, previous COPs, including the one I was at uh, in 2015, the key one, perhaps COP21, where the Paris Agreement was finally settled, um, go over. 
So we have what's called a gavel time at 6 p.m. local time GMT this evening where things are supposed to finish. But quite frankly, um, there are so many things still on the table. I would not be surprised in the slightest if things carry on into Saturday and possibly into Sunday as well. So the weekend is always available for negotiations should we be close enough. And negotiations will only carry on if we are close enough uh, to resolve a few issues. It was very interesting, I thought, talking to Franz Timmermans, a man we've spoken to, of course, in advance of this cop as well about him saying no this is not a cozy side deal actually it's a really positive sign but even mr timmermans was was at pains to point out there as we said there are no concrete commitments coming uh, from the world's largest emitters china and the us in the fact that they have decided and it's it's no mean feat let's be honest about it the chinese and the americans have a hundred different issues from human rights to the militarization of the south china seas to all kinds of issues uh, about why they don't get on at the moment but if they can agree to work on climate change that is a very positive step but let's be honest about it there is no meat on the bones of that agreement just yet as well and so many things are missing in these final hours Karen including the fact that we don't know what the financial situation is going to be like it has always been from day one in fact way before day one coming into this meeting as well that if the rich nations can't commit to the promises they've already made and provide a hundred billion dollars per year to developing and emerging nations then very difficult to get those same emerging nations to turn around and say okay we trust you we are going to move forward with our decarbonization plans as well because they aren't the ones who created this mess it is the of course industrial nations in many cases who have created most of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. There have been progress on a lot of things as well, but not enough progress. For instance, uh, this line in the draft text uh, about um, taking out subsidies for fossil fuels. Well, it's proved very contentious and apparently the likes of Saudis, and I say apparently, the likes of the Saudis, the Indians, the Russians, who of course all in one way or other rely on coal and other forms of uh, subsidies to their populations and to their producers of products as well. Uh, they don't want that line in there as well. So again, some very contentious tautology and contentious action as well missing in many cases where's the action on article 6 again another key point article 6 as all our viewers i'm sure are aware now i've been banging on about it enough is about carbon markets are we going to get an effective verified global carbon market potentially up and running i think a lot of people think that's a, a bridge too far certainly in terms of if you try to ratify it in your domestic jurisdictions including of course mr biden trying to get that through congress as well so is there going to be progress on that can we sort out some of the issues such as double accounting for instance on countries that have um bountiful forests as well but then sell those carbon credits on are you going to be having some form of double accounting as well so lots and lots of contentious issues as well uh, i'll give one more as well the ratchet as well which is basically where every five years you go forward and you change your aspirations you you bring them up to date as well you get more uh, aspirational uh, on those targets as well some people are saying because of technology we can go better we can do this every couple of years others are saying no way it's just not feasible domestically to be able to update our our targets our ndcs our nationally determined contributions are on a bi-yearly basis as well so at the long and the short of it the end of the day these things always go to last minute Karen you've been to enough key conferences in your time then if there is going to be a big decision it will be made in the last few hours or so but Gutierrez you say uh, and the sound that my producer George uh, got from Alex Sharma as well show that really there is a very long way to go <clears throat> and a high degree of skepticism whether we're going to get to <clears throat> excuse me the kind of agreement we need to keep 1.5% alive. As the slogan goes, keeping 1.5% alive, of course, refers to the fact that that is the lower end of the target from COP21 as well, and the level that many see we need to do to keep us 
um, uh, above pre-industrial levels uh, as a limit in order to stop really cataclysmic climate change developing and getting even worse as well. At the moment, according to various trackers, we are between 2.2, 2.4, possibly as high as 2.7% above pre-industrial levels. There is a lot of work to be done, Karen, and I'm not entirely convinced it can all be done in the next 72 hours. Steve, it does sound like it's been one of the most complex conferences uh, we've all attended in recent years. I want to get to those uh, targets, though, on a yearly basis, because there's been a bridge here between country-level targets and what corporates are trying to achieve and the green finance backdrop as well. Isn't it necessary to have some sort of framework, even if it's challenging and complex, where there is some sort of reporting on a yearly basis so that uh, markets can respond, so you can have the appropriate risk when we're stress testing companies, stress testing uh, certain exposures? So isn't it necessary to have that input of information? It's very difficult to do, Karen, uh, and, and, and I'm not so worried about what markets do and respond to this as well. I think that's perhaps not the main point, but I think I, I, th I hear what you're saying, and, and I think there is a level of technological change that means that we can update and become more aspirational on, on these NDCs on a regular basis. But think about think about when companies, let's turn it in market terms for our, for our viewers, think about when companies moan about having to do quarterly reporting and the volatility that creates uh, in the share price and volatility it creates perhaps for CEOs and companies are saying, look, we're just too short short-termism when we have these quarterly updates. Uh, the, what the countries are saying is it takes a long while to compile this kind of data, to get it verifiable, to get it accurate as well. And to do this uh, on, on an annual basis, it's just too much work to put into when we should actually be concentrating rather than reporting on actually fighting climate change as well. So at the moment, we're talking about five-year ratchets, five-year NDCs as well, or, or updates of targets as well. Uh, trying to do that on an annual basis, it's just a lot of work and a lot of cost uh, for some, let's be honest about it, some very poor nations out there, let alone the big nations as well, who have got to accumulate a lot more data. So I, I think if there can be more regulatory, uh, more regular reporting and more verifiable reporting, then that's great. Because that's the other point, Karen. It's all very well for countries coming to the table and saying, look what I've done this year. I've done this. We've, we've done this. And we've, we've, we've taken this amount of gigawatt of, uh, of carbon out of the atmosphere. But then you've got to verify it as well. And that's absolutely at the key of this as well. Anyone can say what they like about what they've achieved. But is it verifiable? Can it be proved? Can we trust? And if we can't trust it, what is the, 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 the comeback for those countries? What, what is the, the, the stick that goes with the carrot as well? Is it withdrawing some of that finance? You did touch upon something else as well, which absolutely I, I know you, you know is a key point, And that is financing. And if the private sector, if the private sector comes forward with a lot more financing, which I think has been actually one of the big successes of, of COP26, perhaps maybe the only big success in many ways, is that the private sector is here in some force as well when it wasn't here at COP21 in Paris as well. So that, that, that's quite positive, but there is a lot of potential negatives uh, which are still on the table here at COP26, Karen. Steve, thank you very much for running us through the latest and keeping us up to date out of COP. Uh, let's push on to the market action. And what we saw stateside, a reversal for the Dow, where we had a, another negative session. This is the third one in the row, where the market moving south by more than 150 odd points on the Dow. And you can see down close to half of 1%. In contrast to green moving back onto the boards, in particular around those big tech names. Don't forget this week there was that shock around the CPI, the 6.2% that crossed stateside. And it did rattle the cage around the big technology exposures. And that's uh, the Nasdaq getting back into the game. You can see the pop of uh, half of a percent. NVIDIA, one of the big moves 
moving stocks to the upside. And uh, you can see uh, getting a little bit of a pop of 80 odd points at this stage. At Treasury markets, so we did have uh, the market out of action for Veterans Day, but at this point, you can see early on 1.56 where we are perched. We uh, rose on the back of the inflation numbers and we've stayed around that level as we look to close out the week, about 10 basis points higher than where we were sitting by last Friday. And the oil market, so we had a warning from OPEC about demand in the final quarter of this year being impacted by the high prices as it's taken down the demand forecast. And you can see it's uh, triggered a bit of a reversal across on prices. Brent tracking down by seven tenths, but still holding above $82 a barrel. 81 on WTI. That is also a slightly weaker trade in the morning session. And gold also giving back some recent gains. The Asian markets, as we look to round out the week, a huge political focus in China at this stage around uh, some of the actions uh, for the future and what that could mean for Xi Jinping entrenching his power. The market also picking up on what was a fairly strong run too for Singles Day and uh, the window that gave into the health of the Chinese consumer. Markets in Hong Kong and Shanghai modestly firmer but uh, we are seeing stronger gains elsewhere. The Australian market, which was weaker yesterday, bouncing eight-tenths of a percent, and Japanese stocks also reaching for some highs, just above 29,600 points, a solid one-plus percent bounce. Now, European markets, we did have a very strong finish for these markets yesterday at uh, highs. The DAX at a record high, and same story too for the French market. Not huge in terms of the percentage gains, but the levels tell you about the catch-up that's taken place here. And uh, the FTSE, well, it may not be at record highs. It is uh, around uh, the highest point it has been since the sell-off going into the pandemic. You can see 7,384 on the board. Steve. Yeah, the markets really don't know what to do about this inflation concern, do they, Karen? But we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, ad infinitum for many years to come. OK, coming up on the show, the UK and EU meet for, yes, yet another round of talks amid rising rhetoric on Article 16. What is Article 16? Why do you care about Article 16? Sylvia will break down the details on Scorebox next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Chinese consumers spent a record $139.1 billion during this year's Singles Day shopping festival. Alibaba reported a 14% increase in sales, while rival JD.com posted a record revenue of almost $55 billion. The entire multi-week event took on a markedly more muted tone amid Beijing's common prosperity push. State newspaper The Securities Daily overnight slammed the sales as a, quote, worship of turnover. The U.S. has ramped up restrictions on Chinese telecom and tech giants. President Biden signed into law the Secure Equipment Act, preventing companies considered a security threat from receiving U.S. licenses. The signing, which will impact the likes of Huawei and ZTE, comes just days ahead of a reported virtual summit between President Xi and Biden, expected to take place on Monday. Meanwhile, China's Xi Jinping cemented his status in history with an historic resolution as the Communist Party's sixth plenum wrapped up in Beijing. 
The document addresses the party's history and achievements and helps cement Xi's grip on power. He's only the third leader to issue such a resolution, putting him alongside the likes of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, a very significant moment there in China. Just walk us through what that means for global markets. Good morning to you, Karen. Well, I mean, this largely appeared to be about approving President Xi Jinping's version of history. And I mean, that's not too hard when you've got rid of a lot of political opponents. And so really, it was no surprise uh, that the Communist Party would certainly pass this key resolution on, as you say, the major achievements and historical experiences uh, of the CCP over the last 100 years. Many would look at this and think, well, this is a bit backwards looking, and it is. But we've got to understand that it is the historical experiences in China, which really drives the psyche of the Communist Party. And so, as you say, there's only been two other uh, resolutions or documents of this kind, one in 1945, one in 1981. And both of those cemented the positions of Mao Zedong and uh, Deng Xiaoping. And so uh, this has been really seen as putting President Xi Jinping on equal footing as those two leaders. And uh, he had already been widely seen, of course, as one of the most uh, powerful leaders uh, since uh, Mao Zedong. So uh, the Communist Party really says that this is necessary to uh, pay the way for a new chapter, suggesting we are looking at a new era in China with President Xi Jinping firmly at the core of that. And to elevate this position even further, President Xi Jinping was actually labelled as the main innovator behind President or Xi Jinping thought, I should say, which of course is the Chinese ideology, which we know is studied as part of the school curriculum. So there has been some suggestion now that this would certainly pave the way for what would be a very likely and unprecedented third term for President Xi Jinping, who's second term wraps up uh, late uh, next year. And of course, that comes after he scrapped those presidential term limits back in uh, 2018, which effectively means he can stay at the helm indefinitely. So we could be saying President Xi Jinping for some time now. So all eyes and certainly what investors will be looking for uh, or towards is that 20th Party Congress, which takes place in October next year. This happens every five years. This is a big event. And we will be, of course, watching for that uh, leadership reshuffle. And of course, in the lead up to that, there's been a lot of clues. President Xi Jinping has really been uh, shaking things up. He's been pushing domestic policy more towards the party. Uh, he's also been trying to bring about social change under this common prosperity banner, going after key parts of the economy, like we've seen when it comes to education, technology and the property sector, which has all affected markets. But he's also been really sharpening his language when it comes uh, to Taiwan. We heard that at the 100th birthday of the CCP, uh, really wanting to reunify with Taiwan. And he wants to see this happen uh, on his watch. So this new era that uh, China is entering does come, of course, uh, in the he against uh, the challenges uh, when it comes to the geopolitical landscape with a lot of tensions uh, with the West, but also as China uh, remains largely closed off still from the rest of the world as it does maintain this zero COVID approach. And so uh, in the meantime, of course, the big thing will be uh, to watch out for uh, is that meeting between President Biden and President Xi Jinping, as you say, reportedly uh, slated for Monday. It's not clear uh, exactly what they will be talking about, but it does come at a time of a lot of tension when it comes to uh, things like nuclear weapons, uh, human rights uh, and Taiwan. Now, according to sources who spoke to our uh, colleagues stateside, the US is actually bracing for President Xi Jinping to invite Biden uh, to the Beijing Winter Olympics, which is happening in just a few months time. And uh, there has been some suggestion that could put Biden in a bit of an uncomfortable position because declining that offer could be a bit of a slap in the face 
uh, for China, but accepting that uh, could uh, certainly uh, raise some eyebrows when it comes to those activists who are looking to boycott this over human rights. Karen, back to you. Sam, thank you very much for giving us the update there. Much appreciated. Elsewhere, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko has threatened to cut off gas supplies to Europe amid an escalating migrant crisis at the Poland-Belarus border. The EU has accused Belarus of provoking the crisis with migrants lining up at the border in the hope of access to the EU. And Brussels has threatened to impose sanctions on Minsk, while German Chancellor Angela Merkel has accused Lukashenko of mounting a hybrid attack on the bloc as she discussed the issue with Russian President Vladimir Putin for the second time in two days. The Belarus president issued a defiant statement amid increasing tensions. Russia sent strategic bombers here accompanied by our fighter aircrafts. We should permanently monitor the situation on the border, let them scream and squeak. Yes, those are nuclear capable bombers, but we have no other choice. We are warming Europe, and they threaten us to shut the border after all. And what if we cut natural gas supplies? Anyone tired of Brexit? I bet you are if you're in Northern Ireland, of all places. Uh, my poor friends and family there. Right, teams from the UK and EU will meet in London today for another round of negotiations on the stalemate over the aforementioned Northern Ireland protocol. Uh, if talks fail, the prospect of London triggering Article 16 looms large. The safeguard clause would allow for border measures that could spark a trade war. With rhetoric rising in recent days, the UK Brexit Minister David Frost told lawmakers that triggering Article 16 may be the only option if talks collapse, whilst, quote, gently suggesting our European friends stay calm. Right, I'm sure that won't uh, annoy anyone in Europe. Uh, meanwhile, EU Brexit negotiator Maros Sefcovic has warned of serious consequences and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen stressed Brussels has already shown the utmost flexibility and that it's important the UK sticks to what we agreed. The Taoiseach, uh, Michal Martin, warned triggering Article 16 would be, quote, irresponsible, unwise and reckless. Well, let's get to Sylvia, who can join us with more. Sylvia, what an absolute mess. Is there a way through it? Well, we thought that Brexit was done, but ultimately here we are talking about it once again. And the issue right now, Steve, is the fact that there are trade frictions and uh, both sides recognize that. Essentially, the United, in fact, the, uh, the UK government needs to make sure that there are checks on goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, and that's not going very well. And both the UK government and the European Commission recognize that that's the case. The problem is that they don't agree on how to fix it. For instance, David Frost has suggested that uh, they end completely those checks on goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, and instead they just trust businesses to inform about the trade flows. For the European Commission, that does not work. The European Commission has said that they need data, that they need some paperwork to check whether goods will ultimately be entering the single market, respecting the European rules. And so the European Commission has proposed that uh, to reduce paperwork for businesses in those situations, but uh, the United Kingdom has said that's not enough. So we are at this impasse, and that's why today's discussions will be important. They mark their fourth round of negotiations. And later today, we will be hearing from Maros 
Lefkovic from the European Commission. He will be speaking here behind me. This is the EU's delegation in the United Kingdom in central London. And what we need to watch out for here is the language that both the EU and the UK will be using after that meeting because we need to understand what sort of situation we are at these talks, whether it's likely that this will escalate and indeed perhaps see the United Kingdom triggering Article 16. And ultimately, the EU has said that in that situation, they will retaliate. They will have to answer uh, that uh, measure from the United Kingdom. And ultimately, we could be looking at a potential trade war between both sides. So Karen, very important to say to see what sort of language both sides will be using to understand whether or not there's room here for us to be concerned about. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.